This week, telecoms under pressure, Peloton revenue drops, Cineworld dip approved, high yield and leverage loan markets show signs of life. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. This week, as part of Reorg's primary review series, Reorg media reporter Hua Wen speaks to Citibank's head of municipal strategy, Vikram Rai, about the state of high yield municipals in 2022, the factors that are driving recent weakness in the market, and the outlook for the asset class in 2023. It's Friday, November 4th. Telecom companies, including Altus USA, Lumen Technologies, and Frontier Communications, all came under pressure this week after each disclosed higher fiber-related costs in conjunction with third-quarter earnings. Lumen said in its earnings call this week that it expects to end 2022 at the low end of its EBITDA guidance range of $6.9 billion to $7.1 billion in the face of general macroeconomic issues and that inflation could, would cause an approximately $100 million hit to EBITDA for the year, and that it could take two to three years before it sees a return to top-line revenue growth. Frontier reported third-quarter total revenue of $1.444 billion, down 8.4% from $1.576 billion in the prior year period, noting that growth in fiber revenue was offset by declines in subsidy revenue and other product lines. Altus highlighted its continued focus on building out its fiber network, expecting to pass over 2 million homes by the end of the year, as well as increased customer churn in the West from local fiber builds and fixed wireless competition, but it said that it's seeing even higher churn where there are fiber builders with AT&T and small local competitors, as well as inflationary pressures. Elsewhere in earnings, Canadian consumer finance company Kuro Group said that it would suspend its quarterly dividends, likely taking to offset some of the macroeconomic headwinds facing the company, including increases in benchmark interest rates, weakening of the Canadian dollar to the U.S. dollar, and the normalization of credit card trends to pre-pandemic levels. The company reported revenue of approximately $214 million for the third quarter of 2022, compared to $209 million for the third quarter of 2021, and adjusted EBITDA was approximately $38 million, flat with the year-ago period. Fitness gear provider Peloton Interactive reported revenue of $616.5 million in its first fiscal quarter of 2023, down 9% from the fourth fiscal quarter of 2022, and down 23% year-over-year. Adjusted EBITDA was negative $33.4 million, an improvement from the negative $288.7 million reported in the fourth quarter, and negative $233.7 million reported in the year-ago quarter. The company states that near-term demand for connected fitness hardware is likely to remain challenged, and the company expects connected fitness churn to be similar to the first quarter. Over the course of fiscal year 2023, Peloton expects approximately $70 million of additional restructuring-related cash charges and expects to generate near-break-even free cash flow in the second half of fiscal 2023. Management said on a recent earnings call that it would not make any further headcount reductions and that in order to achieve its target of near break-even free cash flow in the second half of 2023, the company would rely on other parts of the business performing. On Monday, Judge Marvin Isger approved Cineworld's final dip financing after the debtors and the official committee of unsecured creditors reached a resolution on the terms of the dip. The final dip order embodies what debtors counsel described as the three pillars of the deal a six-week marketing process for an alternative transaction, full cash repayment of their pre-petition priming term loans, and payment of at least $20 million of stub rent before the effective date. Judge Isger's order freed up $1 billion of cash earmarked for refinancing the pre-petition priming term loans, inclusive of accrued but unpaid interest and make-hold premiums totaling $125 million, previously placed in escrow in connection with interim dip approval. In the latest chapter of the dispute between Cineworld and National Cinemedia, or NCN, over the party's Exhibitor Services Agreement, or ESA, debtor Regal Cinemas filed a new suit accusing NCM of sending threatening letters to third-party advertisers in violation of the automatic stay. 
Regal said NCM told advertisers they risked litigation if they discussed replacement advertisement services with Regal and asked the court for a temporary restraining order to prevent NCM from sending the letters. In response, NCM asserted that it was merely attempting to place the parties on notice of facts which could be relevant to their decision to continue to engage with the debtors. Siding with Regal, Judge Isger entered a temporary restraining order on Tuesday preventing NCM from sending letters to third-party advertisers, calling them an unambiguous violation of the automatic stay. High-yield and leveraged loan primary markets showed signs of life this week as borrowers sought to close deals before the Thanksgiving holiday, after which the deal calendar tends to enter hibernation until the new year. Teneco began marketing $2.4 billion in senior secured notes and a term loan B, part of a $7.58 billion package to support its acquisition by Apollo. The notes and loan are expected to price the week of November 14th. Dish Network announced an offering of $2 billion in five-year senior secured notes backed by certain 600 MHz Spectrum licenses held by ParkerB.com Wireless. Proceeds are slated to support the build-out of the company's wireless infrastructure. While the DBS credit box and the company's retail wireless operations generate free cash flow, Dish's remaining operations do not. Neither the new notes nor the intercompany loans are guaranteed by DBS or retail wireless-related entities. In August, T-Mobile acquisition of Columbia Management-related entities holding 600 MHz Spectrum, however, suggests that the market value of Dish's 600 MHz Spectrum holdings could well exceed its $6.2 billion September 30th carrying date. Also, Nielsen Holdings announced plans to sell $1.96 billion of 6.5-year senior secured notes to support its acquisition by Elliott and Brookfield. Top Red Stories this week included... Incora bondholders sued avoid bad faith, sham, up-tier exchange, attack companies' use of phantom notes. New York Supreme Court issues judgment requiring Moby to pay DeMeo's fees, expenses following dismissal with prejudice of Moby's tortious interference claims. Ultra seeks Fifth Circuit en banc review of Maycole post-petition interest decisions. Just majority's reasoning would be laughed out of court. Ergen SPAC Connex announces 90% of Class A shares redeem, leaves about $73 million in trust account funds for potential dish retail wireless transaction. Kathy Ta is out this week, so I'll be bringing you the week ahead from Forest Hills, New York. Multiple court hearings are lined up for Monday. First, in Puerto Rico, the First Circuit Court of Appeals will be hearing all arguments in the appeal of Judge Lord Taylor Swain's December 2021 decision dismissing an adversary proceeding filed by six state-chartered Puerto Rico cooperativas, or credit unions. The cooperatives allege that various government entities and instrumentalities engage in a fraudulent scheme to coerce them into purchasing government bonds. In opioid litigation, U.S. District Judge Charles Breyer will kick off the multi-week abatement trial in the San Francisco MDL Bellwether case. In August, the judge found Walgreens liable for contributing to the opioid crisis in San Francisco. The Cabbage DBA case servicing debtors will be in, also be in court on Monday to seek approval of their comprehensive settlement with Customers Bank. Under the agreement, the debtors would recover $58 million in payment protection program loan servicing and referral fees, including $23 million in cash that the debtors say provides critical liquidity. In litigation coverage of GSEs, Judge Keith Ellison will be hearing arguments in the remanded Collins case. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac shareholders will defend their first amended complaint, which renews their attack on the net worth sweep of the government-sponsored entity's cash from dismissal. The government agencies say dismissal is warranted because the first amended complaint, among other things, exceeds the scope of the limited remand. The parties have also pointed to the recent Fifth Circuit decision in CFSA v. CFPB as additional support for their arguments. Turning to Tuesday, the Aero Technologies debtors will ask Judge Jeffrey Graham for a bankruptcy court-supervised mediation aimed at resolving Chapter 11 plan and confirmation-related issues, including combat arms earplugs claims against the debtors and parent 3M. 
Tuesday, we'll also see Just Energy and the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, go toe-to-toe before the Fifth Circuit in the appeal of Judge David Jones' order denying ERCOT's motion to dismiss or alternatively abstain from deciding the Just Energy's second amended complaint to recover Storm Uri payments. On Wednesday, in the Hertz unsecured notes adversary proceeding over make whole and position interest, the parties will present oral argument for their respective motions for summary judgment. On Thursday, Endo will head to court to seek a 270-day preliminary injunction barring governmental entities from continuing or commencing opioid litigation against the company. This week, as part of RIRG's primary review series, RIRG Mini reporter Hua Wen speaks to Citibank's head of municipal strategy, Vikram Rai, about the state of high-yield municipals in 2022, the factors that are driving recent weakness in the market, and the outlook for the asset class in 2023. Municipal bond outflows and several rounds of interest rate hikes this year have negatively impacted high-yield offerings. We've seen many of these high-yield deals going day-to-day, especially in the last six months, most of which are project-based and unrated or low-rated. On today's inaugural podcast about the municipal bond market, we're going to discuss what has transpired in the primary municipal market so far this year and what we can expect to see in the home stretch of 2022 heading into 2023. I am Huang Nguyen, a municipal bond reporter at Reorg Research, and I have Vikram Rai in the room with me this afternoon. Welcome, Vikram. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Vikram is the head of City's Municipal Strategy Group. He covers short-duration strategy and formerly worked in City's U.S. rates trading. Prior to joining City in 2007, Vikram worked for the private equity division of the hedge fund Old Lane LLP. Um, so to get us started, could you please share with us how high yield municipal bonds have performed this year relative to last year, as well as compared to other asset classes? Sure. So, you know, it's a bit of a red herring, but performance in the municipal market has very little to do with municipals because it's all driven by macro factors. So, I mean, we all know what's happening in the rates market. The Fed is hiking. Inflation is a big worry. So because of that, rates have sold off almost 300 basis points in the start of the year. And so the performance numbers that we are seeing in the municipal market, they're negative, yes. But when you actually start comparing them to other asset classes, they're not that bad. So just to give you a sense, so if you look at the broader municipal market, Let's take a broad base index such as the S&P index. So year to date, returns are negative 12, let's say. Okay, And high yield uh, specifically is about negative 17. Now, negative 17 seems like a very, very, it seems like a horrible print. And when you actually compare it to the corporate market, uh, high yield corporates, the returns year to date are about negative 15. So not that much worse. But something to keep in mind about the municipal high yield market is that, see, these are long duration products. So performance has been impacted because of the longer duration of this paper. So we have sold off and it's not a reflection of any kind of a deterioration in credit quality. In fact, credit quality is quite solid. And a lot of these smaller issuers they are sitting on piles of cash that they can use in a pinch. And this is true for the larger issues, obviously. So yes, the numbers seem appalling and uh, it could continue that way. So at the 
during the at the end of first half i had very famously proclaimed that oh the second half will be better and i have lost that mm-hmm. confidence because the fed is on a tear and uh, they are serious about getting inflation in check mm-hmm. and to do that they the fact that they may continue hiking us well into a recession worries the market right so and so it is the fed which is in focus it is the inflation which is in focus and that is causing this bear steepening of the treasury curve and we are just dancing to the tune of the treasury market mm-hmm. right so yes you know as you correctly mentioned we are in the, in the in the throes of an outflow cycle and the funds are witnessing outflows because rates are selling off so you know how retail investors behave that they will sell into a sell off and buy into a rally because when they see a negative number on their monthly report their first instinct is to go and sell when they should be doing the opposite right so if outflows continue and they very well may then we can expect the numbers to deteriorate mm-hmm. so i am not optimistic about performance numbers for q4 they could remain negative they could go down some more and remember we haven't really had that much supply so supply is down almost 20% year over year and despite the fact the supply is down performance hasn't been good so once supply picks up when that's a tailwind which will go away yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you you just mentioned about um, the yield curve, um, and I was just wondering if you could talk more about how the Muni Treasury ratios have fluctuated since the beginning of this year, and you know what what do those fluctuations tell us about the market? Okay, now fair question. So see, the Muni Treasury ratio is just it's just a met- it's an, an imperfect metric. That said, it's one of the best metrics that we have to assess relative value. So, the Muni Treasury ratio. Think about it. What does it mean? So, let me give you a very simple example. Mm-hmm. So, most of the Muni market is tax exempt, right? About eighty percent of the market is tax exempt. So, why would an investor buy a, a Muni bond which is yielding less than the Treasury bond? Because the expectation is that on a tax-adjusted basis, he or she will come out ahead. So supposing you have a treasury bond yielding one percent, right? And, and I'm just giving a hypothetical example, right? A treasury bond is yielding one percent, and then you have an equivalent maturity muni bond, equivalent rating too, because munis are generally very high grade, yielding sixty basis points, right? So when would an investor choose the muni bond over the treasury bond, despite the fact it's yielding yes? That will occur if the investor's tax bracket is higher than 40, right? So when you have a muni treasury ratio, of, say 75%, the 10-year ratio currently is at 80%, right? So in theory, I should the muni investor should who is in a higher tax bracket than 20, and all of us are, right? And my tax bracket is egregiously high. <laughs> so in theory, the muni investor should be willing to accept the muni bond was the treasury bond because 20%, I mean, my tax practice are on a tax adjusted basis, I'll come out ahead. Right? But there are other factors in play because munis are not as liquid. Munis are not treasuries. Treasury is the quintessential safe asset. Right? Munis are very safe too, mm-hmm. but there is an illiquidity discount. 
there is a disclosure discount, there's a fragmentation discount, there's a negative convexity discount because munis are callable. So all those factors are in play. Now your original question that what do the fluctuations in the muni treasury ratios tell us? Frankly, this year we have not seen rampant fluctuations in muni treasury ratios because again, we understand that this is not about munis. So during the pandemic, the treasury ratios just shot through the roof. So the higher the treasury ratio, the cheaper the muni, right? That's what it indicates, right? So supposing the treasury ratio, is, the muni treasury ratio is 200%. That means the muni bond yield is twice that of treasury. And during the pandemic, there were worries about credit stress faced by state and local governments. Muni treasury ratios went to 400%, right? Right now they're back down to normal levels. And that this happened in 2020 itself. And the ratios are anything from 70 to 90% across the curve. It's an upward sloping ratio curve. So like I said earlier, that munis are marching to the tune of treasuries. So treasury rates go up, muni rates might lag a bit, but they'll ultimately follow treasuries. So ratios have not fluctuated so much, and the fact they haven't fluctuated again tells you that this is a rate story. It's a macro story. It's not a muni story. Mm. So what market conditions are necessary for muni bonds to be a bargain compared to to the treasuries and will those conditions be a good thing so see the so we're in the throes of an outflow cycle right so an outflow cycle typically causes the muni market to cheapen right because that means that there is a demand gap and an outflow cycle means that so you have funds are not buying in fact they're selling now, mutual funds make up for a very large portion of the muni buyer base. So, I mean, that's it's a good question because, you know, is it a good thing? So, see, during the pandemic, we had an outflow cycle, but that is a credit story. That is not a good thing because it shows that there was there's, there are worries about credit stress in the muni market. So that's not a good thing. Now, right now, we have an outflow cycle, but we have an outflow cycle because investors don't want to be holding long duration paper so they're selling the muni bonds and, and putting the money in cash or equities whatever so it is possible that if the outflow cycle exacerbates and that will happen if rates continue to sell off then muni bonds are cheaper because there's a supply demand imbalance there's supply but there's not enough demand mm -hmm. now in that instance you know i think investors would find bargains in the market because the credit quality is same the market conditions are the same. It's just that the bonds are cheaper because of the negative technical. Right? So that's that's it. So I I would say that if muni is cheapened dramatically, and that could happen for a whole host of reasons, but I don't see credit as a risk. Yes, there are worries that state and local governments, you know, they'll have to contend with the recession, but munis are actually one of the most defensive products. Mm -hmm. So they do well in a recession. It's not like corporates. Right? Could you kind of unpack that a little bit for me as well as the listeners okay. like why are munis so um, kind of like shielded against you know a looming recession okay now fair question so think about what what is the source of revenues for municipal issuers it's income taxes property taxes tolls right so again i live in hoboken new jersey right <laughs> during the pandemic i was worried about my job but the, the city said, don't worry, Vikram, you know, take it easy in your property taxes, we can wait. No, the property taxes were due 
on the first of the quarter. So what I'm trying to say is that the revenue is sticky. Recession may come and go, but the revenues are the the tax collections are due. Hmm. The tax payment is due rather, not tax collections. So it's the same for you know, income taxes. So there is a lag. So meaning that yes, you know we may be well into a recession or out of it before we see any blip in tax collections because tax collection is sticky. It takes time before you know you see a drop in tax collections, and by then the recession may be done. So it's a defensive product. It's just so it goes back to the sources of revenue, right? Corporate bonds, the the ability to pay is is dependent on corporate profitability. Right? In this instance, the ability to pay is dependent on the ability to raise taxes right? or raise tolls, and that many muni issuers, I mean, toll roads, for instance, right? the bridge and tunnel authorities, they have unlimited rate setting authority. Right. If they had to go and raise the toll on Lincoln Tunnel from 18 to 21, would I stop driving to Manhattan? No. <laughs> Same thing, that if, if my city decided, okay, they're going to raise my property taxes substantially, would I get up and move? No, because I have a house there, my kids go to school there, this is where I, where I commute to work from. So there's a stickiness to the revenue base, which is what makes Muni Credit so resilient. Mm, I see. So you just mentioned earlier um, about the tax exempt status of you know most municipal bonds. Yet I've seen you know the volume of taxable issuance increase you know o- over the past two years or so. Um, so I'm just curious to know you know who are the people buying taxable munis, and if so, how have these taxable bonds uh, performed this year? Okay, so let me unpack that question because there are multiple facets to it. So firstly, taxable issuance is down this year again. Right? I think you're referring oh. to the past two years. Mm-hmm. So the taxable issuance gone, had gone up tremendously in 2019, 2020, 2021. And what was happening was that there were refinancings happening. So see, for an issuer to issue tax-exempt debt, they have to meet certain requirements. Right? So you have to show that the use of proceeds meets the requirements which are needed. I mean, that, that, that there are some rules that apply. Right? Mm-hmm. What are you using the debt for? It has to be, it has to work towards the betterment of a society. Now, so what I'm saying is that issuers have to jump through some hoops before they can issue, before they can access the tax exempt market, right? Certain requirements have to be met. Now, taxable issuance is easier. You don't have to meet those requirements, and if you have somebody who's willing to buy your bonds, you can issue taxable debt. So what? There was a period of time when issuers just believed that you know it would be easier to refinance their tax-exempt debt with taxable debt. So the spike that we witnessed in taxable issuance was coming due to refinancings. And muni bonds are very unusual in the sense that 60% of the market is callable, and it's high coupon debt, meaning that even though yields are very low, yields could be 60 basis points, muni issuers still like to issue 5% coupon debt. So for all practical purposes, you know, when the refinancing happens, they're looking at the 5% coupon. So that was what was happening, that issues are refinancing their existing muni debt, tax exempt debt, with taxable debt, and that's why we saw a surge in taxable issuance. Mm. Right? So what has triggered these refinancings then? 
what the trigger what triggered the refi refinancing is the arbitrage opportunity right that was just it was at times it made sense they were worried about so so see again uh, you know it's, it's, it's another wrinkle in the muni market that there are two types of refinancings and they're called refundings in the market it's called there's one a current refunding and then there's an advanced refunding right advanced refunding means that you can go Advanced refunding means that you can go and refinance a bond where the call date is more than three months away, right? But because of a change in rules, tax exempt, you're not allowed to do it in the tax exempt market because it, because Congress believed that this is arbitrage, right? So you can still go and do a refinancing in the tax exempt space, but the call date has to be inside of three months. Now, what was happening two years ago or last year was that you have a bond which has a call date two years away, right? Now, I think what the issues were thinking, and if you look back, they did the right thing, that they were worried about rising rates. So their thought was that should I go and issue in the taxable market, refinance in the taxable market, even though the taxable rate is higher than the prevailing tax exempt rate, but this taxable rate will still be way less than where rates might end up. And that calculation turned out to be exactly right. right? They, were, they were worried about a rate rise. So that's what drove the refinancing. They went and refinanced their tax exam paper with call dates that were years in the future with taxable debt because they were worried about higher rates. And that economics has played out very well for the issuer. Mm. Okay? So now that the rates are genuinely higher, those rate worries have gone away to some extent. So that same refinancing is not happening. See, two years ago, during the pandemic, the, you, know, you had the treasury at sub 1%. So everybody knew that that kind of a funding rate is unsustainable and rates will be higher two years down the line. And this is exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. right? So it was just a rate call which drove these, refund which drove these refundings. Mm -hmm. yeah. I see. So we're now about a month into the last quarter of 2022. Um, where do you see the, the primary market heading by the end of this year coming into early 2023? Well, so like I said, issuance is down 20%. And issuance is down 20% because there has not been enough taxable issuance. But tax exempt issuance has been fairly stable. And that's because see, in the tax exempt space issuers I mean, so there are two types of debt. There's new money and there's refinancing, or we call it refunding. So new money means something needs to be financed, a project needs to be funded, or, or, or there's, a, there's a budgetary gap that has to be filled. So, I mean, yes, during a higher rate environment or when there's volatility in the market, the issuers might shy away from the market for a bit, meaning that they might take a step back and wait it out for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. But ultimately, they will come back. And they come to the market because they have to. So they typically, they will avoid Fed weeks. Because whenever the FOMC is in session, that market is very volatile. And they, they, it's, like, mm -hmm. it's like, let's not go out in the rain. Or they will avoid weeks which have holidays. Because the holiday shortened week, investors are away. So they were worried about getting worse rates because not everybody is, is engaged. But in typical weeks, which are not FOMC weeks, which are not holiday shortening weeks, the supply has been very stable and healthy. So 
going forward, if you think about it, how many holiday weeks do we have? We have three remaining. One for Veterans Day, one for Thanksgiving, one for Christmas. Then we have two Fed weeks, right? November and December. So this is the 43rd week, right? So we have another nine weeks remaining. Five weeks go away because of two for the Fed, three for holidays. So we have only four weeks remaining, which are normal supply weeks. So that's why I'm a little worried about my supply ex estimate that we could underwhelm it. So when we started the year, we were expecting almost 500 billion in supply. Now that expectation is much lower, let's say 420 billion, which is much less than last year. Like I said, 20% less. Is that surprising to you at all? It's not surprising to me when I, when I consider the current environment that taxable issuance just went away. Tax exempt issuance is pretty much under track. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's what the primary market will look like. It's just that we don't have time to issue. And that's why we will underwhelm our expectation. Awesome. Um, that's all of the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? No, I, I think that's pretty much it. I think you covered it very well. I mean, like I said, it's not about munis, right? It's, 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 about, it's, it's about macro factors. So there's a, there's, a, cut this out. there's a joke, right, that once a, a patient went to a doctor and said that, uh, you know, I, I, doctor, I'm very worried about myself. You know, I, I, I keep losing my temper. So the doctor says, okay, yeah, tell me a problem. He says, I just told you a problem, my problem, right? I keep losing my temper. Mm -hmm. So the doctor wasn't listening. So even now I have clients who reach out to me and say, you know, what's wrong with the muni market? And I want to tell them, you're not listening, right? It's not munis, it's macro. Well, thank you so much, Vikram, once again for you know sharing with us a lot of your incredible insights about the Muni market. Um, we really, really appreciate it. My, my pleasure. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. You can find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Friday.